I don't see how you don't get AIs, that there'll be enormous incentives to build AIs which are capable of doing things in the real world. And in order to do things in the real world, well, you are given an overall goal, but then you have to fill in all sorts of sub-goals along the way. And so there will be AI actors with goals and sub-goals and extremely capable. How can you then be sure that what they are trying to do is what we want them to do? Welcome to Steering AI, where we talk about how AI will shape the future and how we can steer it along the way. I'm your host, Ruben Adams, PhD student in AI at UCL. Today we're talking about the longer term. How far away are we from creating AI systems whose capabilities rival our own, and would doing so pose an existential risk? I'm delighted to be tackling this topic with the wise and captivating Chris Watkins, Professor of Machine Learning at Royal Holloway, University of London. Professor Watkins introduced the hugely influential Q-learning algorithm during his PhD at Cambridge, which, when combined with neural networks, ultimately led to DeepMind's incredible Atari-playing agent in 2013. He has done fascinating research in kernel methods, the role of communication in pandemic modelling, and information-theoretic analysis of evolution. Professor Chris Watkins, welcome to Steering AI. Hello. Um, Thank you. That's most kind. Um, Yes, we've all started thinking more about AI recently. and. The way I put it to myself is that the future seems to have suddenly got closer. Things which we thought of as science fiction, they seem so far away. Now, suddenly we think they'll be here in a few years. And one has to start actually thinking about it, how it may arrive in practice and what it may actually mean. And that's a very unfamiliar sensation. (laughs) (laughs) We're not used to progress going faster than we expected in AI. I think so. I think, um, well, neural networks were, uh, you know, backpropagation was invented in 1987 and also several times, it was several times in the late 1980s and once or twice before, but not really be used. Uh, And this was immediately interesting. It was interesting because you could have networks of neural-like elements, all implemented in software, uh, that actually seem to do something interesting. And that was, that was a huge interest in neural networks in, in the early 1990s, an enormous interest which kind of died down uh, for then other machine learning techniques, which seemed to be mathematically simpler and cleaner, took over for 10 years. And, and then there was an enormous surprise with deep learning. Training neural networks on large data sets just seemed to work much better than anyone had expected, and nobody knew why. There are some inklings of why now, but nobody knew why. And immensely impressive and unexpected achievements popped out for people who programmed their GPUs to train their neural networks, as we all know. This is going to be familiar to many of the listeners. So that was one surprise, and most particularly in vision, identifying a cat in an image, for example. I can hardly begin to describe to a a student now how impossible this task would have seemed in, say, 2005. How would you do it? The cats can be in any position, and and it's so various. How do you even try? But uh, Andrew did it. 
uh, with an enormous training data set of images of cats and not cats taken from the internet, which of course was a wholly new source of training data at the time. So that was one enormous surprise. Oh, that was a surprise in another way as well, because for the first time, we had interesting computations for these vision neural networks using a computational method that looked, well, not a million miles away from what's going on in the brain. You have an enormous parallel computation with tens of millions or hundreds of millions of elements and computations, which did something interesting, like recognizing a person, in a very short time. Now, how the brain could possibly do this, this had been completely unknown for 100 years. We knew that neurons worked by spiking, by sending each other electrical signals. We knew that neurons worked by sending these electrical signals through synapses, which were like adjustable switches, uh, adjustable resistors, if you like, or threshold units. And we knew that the brain did interesting things in this way. And we knew that the brain had to do it in only a few hundred cycles, because each cycle of neural computation lasts several milliseconds. You probably know better than I how many milliseconds. I think it sounds about right, yeah. A few milliseconds. So an extraordinary achievement, like recognizing the face of your friend under arbitrary lighting conditions as they come towards you. The brain, we do it effortlessly, or, or subconsciously anyway, where quite a lot of energy is put into this, within 250 milliseconds, 500 milliseconds. And no one had the faintest idea how that happened in the brain. And now, well, put it this way, deep learning is producing ideas which are filtering into neuroscience both ideas and techniques into neuroscience. So those, those are two very strong trends. And then, well, I, the reason we're sitting here today is ChatGPT. Actually, there have been rumblings of large language models since about 2007. The first papers, early paper by Colbert and Weston, and also probably by other people. And uh, then in the late 2010s, out came GPT-2, which then seemed an enormous neural network, hundreds of megabytes, trained on an enormous gigabytes of text. And with care and attention, tender loving care, you could coax out of it little stories and sensible pieces of paragraphs of text uh, about unicorns living in the Andes, which could speak English famously. I remember being completely blown away by that story. I mean, so was, weren't we impressed? It, it's, this seemed incredible. And it had happened, really, with very little... Uh, so, so translation, which is also very difficult, had, had also been, uh, been enormous progress in translation. And this came out of the work on translation. But it seemed absolutely extraordinary that a neural net could generate language. Now, the reason why that seemed absolutely extraordinary is that since Chomsky in 1956-7, he famously uh, argued that language was based on transformational grammar. Linguists and computational linguists have been devising grammars, uh, descriptions of the syntax of language, and they'd so nearly succeeded. I mean, you can download the Stanford Core NLP parser today and you can run sentences through it and it'll parse them and some of them it gets right and some of them it doesn't. And actually, there are really simple ones which it still doesn't get right. There's a classic example sentence of time flies like an arrow, which, 
when fully passed, has multiple different meanings that you wouldn't expect. Yes. I mean, the amazing thing about parsing is that, I mean, there's no dispute that sentences have a kind of tree-like structure when you look at them, but somehow generating these tree-like structures in a plausible way was very difficult. If you made your grammar big enough with enough rules to be able to account for nearly all of language, it generated silly things as well. And every sentence you looked at, like time flies like an arrow, had tens or sometimes hundreds or enormous, unexpectedly huge numbers of different parses, mm -hmm. of, of different tree structures, which you could attach to it. One of my favourite sentences, again, is um, hospitals named after sandwiches kill five, um, which was a newspaper, an actual newspaper headline in the Times. I think they must have <laughs> rather enjoyed doing that. Um, I like it because GPT-4 gets it wrong. Okay. okay. GPT-4 gives a long explanation of how hospitals could be named after sandwiches, <laughs> as perhaps as part of a sponsorship agreement, or, or something whimsically <laughs> named after sandwiches. And the hospitals don't kill people, but uh, you know, maybe people died and it wasn't clear. Well, there's a Reuben College in Oxford, and that's named after a sandwich. <laughs> it's not, not too uh, unlikely. <laughs> right. um, oh, anyway, so people thought that you needed to understand uh, syntax. Um, uh, the semantics was very, very difficult um, as well, and, and, and also the pragmatics, and, and put these together in some complex system. And a neural network collection of matrices was spitting out complex sentences. And then, of course, came ChatGPT3. Now, the step between GPT2 and GPT3 is basically a scalar. Now, now of course, this is a tremendous engineering achievement, and I'm, I'm not an expert on all the things that were done. In order to be able to train a vastly larger network, you, there's all sorts of clever engineering involved and a large team of people doing it. And then the step from GPT-3, this pure text prediction, to something which is actually useful, like ChatGPT, involves a great deal of extra training to try to modify which sentences it will produce. Mm -hmm. um, this is the RLHF. The, the uh, reinforcement learning from human feedback. Yes, it's not quite my kind of reinforcement learning. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and, and this is perhaps less well done. Well, there's now an immense amount of research on fine-tuning, and, and a great many groups are trying to improve this. And ChatGPT, at this point, was enormously shocking, most shocking to people who've been following AI, I think. The general public, oh, well, okay, you can talk to a computer. Okay. Um, this time it's not an actor pretending to be a computer, it's actually a computer, but okay. <laughs> um, now, such a sudden improvement, producing sensible and apparently insightful replies to questions in a, in a useful way on any subject you can name. This, this has never been achieved before. To me, it's still magical, and I have little intuition how it does it. But let's look systematically at just why this is so surprising um, or, or why it's so shocking and why this really makes one estimate that the future's got closer. The first thing is it's producing language and it obviously wasn't given a syntax. It's doing it in a way which uh, is, is ma a massively connectionist manner, which was previously unimaginable and a complete surprise. It's come through engineering really rather rapidly. I think scientific and engineering progress is really not normally as easy as that. It didn't come as the result of some moonshot program. It, it, the, the first paper on describing ChatGPT, I think, was well, something like large language models show one-shot learning. I think they didn't really 
fully understand what they had. (laughs) The next thing which is shocking about it is its scale. It's been trained on a superhuman amount of text, but this means that you can talk to these large language models about any subject imaginable, from ancient Roman emperors to recipes for obscure vegetables to any mathematical topic you want. Uh, to how to program in Python. Mm-hmm. That's what I use it for mostly. <laughs> yeah, me too. I find it very useful for that. Um, well, we'll come to that in a moment. <laughs> we'll come to that. Um, and, and so it's kind of superhuman. So it's very hard to say that this is not an AGI in some sense. It's certainly artificial. It's definitely general. It's more general than me. <laughs> and In breadth. In breadth. And, and in some sense... It's sort of intelligent. Now, I don't think there's any good definition of what intelligent means, and I'm not going to get. We're not. We're not going to try to define intelligence. Not today. Um, not today. That would be really hard. Um, and uh, then it is what I would call super usable. You can just casually ask it questions in ordinary language, and it will often give you a sensible and useful reply. And then I think a very serious and quite significant and scary thing is that although the big models are not open source, these things are open sourced straight away. There are really quite capable smaller models, which you can run on a desktop machine if you've got a decent GPU, and you can train them yourself. So so this this is really democratized um, Mm -hmm. by open source. It's spread worldwide. It's downloadable. Uh, That's a company hugging space which specializes in hugging face ha- hugging face yes <laughs> a, 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 a shout out hugging face uh, <laughs> has trained models and uh, writes software to develop software to make them easy to use it's extraordinary and this means uh, it means we've made, made very sudden unexpectedly rapid progress we're starting to connect uh, these large language models also with neuroscience in some striking early results, it's early day, very early days yet, and the development, you know, the technical development, although very large, what they call frontier model, you know, the largest models. Well, by definition, you can only develop those if you're a company with deep pockets and you can pay for a lot of computation. But there are an awful lot of small companies and even private, small organisations and private individuals who can either take these models and tune them or develop their own models using unimaginable amounts of computation, or sorry, amounts of computation unimaginable a few years ago. And the computation is going to get faster. There's a great deal of engineering effort now devoted to speeding up these models to, I mean, low precision is an, perhaps an easy win, LoRa, low rank adaptation, and mm-hmm. there are all sorts of techniques that people are bringing in. And so, so the, the process of speeding up the training is happening. And in the medium term, um, multiplying two matrices using a GPU, a graphics processing unit, a computer, this is an, a, an immensely luxurious and expensive procedure. There are much simpler chips that you can design if you're only interested in matri- matrix multiplication. And in particular, if you have a particular matrix you want to multiply by, right. you can have a kind of crossbar chip, and this takes very little energy. Hmm. So this means that... These already very capable, notice I'm not saying intelligence, I'm saying capable systems 
will soon be able to be very widely deployed with low power in mobile phones, on vision systems, on drones. We'll get that. Uh, <laughs> and, and, I mean, uh, so, so you have multiple factors which are really accelerating progress. And, of course, the other thing is that this is now, by, t- by far, developing AI is now the most popular topic in science. But the, the wide-scale deployment of these large language models that you can fine-tune yourself for whatever purpose you wish, surely this is a fantastic thing, that people can now use these to automate various parts of uh, drudgery and, frankly, just have a lot of fun with them. You can certainly have a lot of fun with them. I mean, they're, they're hilarious. I'm not entirely sure they're going to be as useful as people think. I mean, the problem is that these models are not reliable and it's very hard to make them reliable. And personally, I suspect that this is for fairly fundamental reasons. Now, I don't want to say that language models will never be reliable, but I think we need some conceptual advances first before we could make reliable systems based on them. And it's very important. It's very, when you're talking to these language models, I mean, I always, I find myself typing, please and thank you. (laughs) Because it just feels to me more natural. I'm I'm more comfortable doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have no idea if this improves the replies or not. I know <laughs> that the language model really doesn't care. It's my prompting system. If you wouldn't, I, I don't. I don't say if you wouldn't mind <laughs> when I'm talking to a language model, and I'm not very good at prompting them. Um, well, it all just depends on whether in the training corpus, polite users were getting better answers. Absolutely, yes. It's, it's not, the model doesn't care. It's, it's just finding, stimulating it to generate the text that you want. Which cognitive tasks, if any, do you think are out of reach for large language models? In terms of capabilities, it's always going to be tantalising because how the things are developed, you set up a battery of tasks battery of questions and responses that you want so that you can have some sort of objective evaluation. So you pay, I don't know how they do this, I assume they pay low-paid people to create tens of thousands of these things. And so each of these sets of questions and answers is a benchmark, and then you evaluate your model on these benchmarks. Okay. Now, I would predict we're just going to get better and better performance on these benchmarks. And so it'll it'll always seem that you can make engineering progress. But with the present design of large language models, uh, I think that there are some quite big differences between human and large language model cognition, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, let's just take the most, what's the most obvious difference? The most obvious difference is that right now, as we're talking, we're generating great training data for language models. <laughs> Every word we say is going to go into, and what we say is training data for these models. Mm-hmm. We're training the models. The models aren't training us. Okay. So why is what humans speak and write training data for language models? It's better in some way than what the language models are. Right? Well, what, what's the difference? That's not quite always true. So there's this mm-hmm. paper called Constitutional AI. Oh, right. right. Where you, you get, um, so you get some, a question for the AI, for the large language model, and it responds. Mm-hmm. And then you have a constitution, a set of rules uh-huh. that the language model is meant to abide by. Mm-hmm. And then you ask a separate instance of the language model to evaluate what the first output was according to these. I see. Yes. And then rewrite it so it matches the constitution. Yes. And then you use that for supervised learning for the original language model. I see. That's, that's very ingenious. Um, 
I, I mean, I think there is a lot of work on getting large language models to talk to themselves so that you use an internal dialogue. And the basic philosophy of this is that a large language model contains a vast, in some sense, contains a vast amount of what you might call knowledge. And when you're asking a question, if you give yourself just one shot at asking a question and getting an answer, you're not using the full capability of the model. You should be able to assess the answer in the light of the other knowledge the language model contains. So you should be able to ask the language model about it. Um, I think uh, one natural strategy is to ask the language model to generate corroborating questions. And so you set up systems with internal dialogue, which means that you're accessing a greater variety of knowledge within the language model, and you're using the very generality of the natural language interface to elicit relevant knowledge and then combine it again to try to get a better answer. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I think that's, that's very interesting. But I, I think there are still um, two differences between people and language models. Uh, the first difference is that our knowledge of language is rooted in our experience growing up in using language to refer to the world and to... It's grounded. It's grounded. Um, and language models at present are not... I mean, people are starting to ground them, but they don't develop language in this grounded way. The second thing is that uh, we use language for communication. And this, again, at the present part of time, this seems to be quite different from what language models do. I think it's actually worth going into this. So the question is, how, how would you define what we mean by communication? What does it mean to communicate something? And so your first attempt, if you're a philosopher, might be to say, well, I've communicated something to you if I cause you to believe it. And that feels pretty good. Before, you don't believe something or you don't know something, and afterwards you do, and I've caused you to know it. But is there a case of doing that which we would describe as not communication? So this philosopher, this Oxford philosopher, um, this is going to sound so 1950s, um, he said, well, just imagine a village back at the dawn of language with the wise man of the village, and there is a path leading on the side of a cliff, and the young people of the village take this path, but the wise man of the village considers it to be dangerous, and he wishes the young people of the village to believe it's dangerous, so they won't take it. So what does he do? Well, he gets up before dawn. He goes out and he kills some wild beasts um, with a club and arranges them as if they have fallen from the path. Mm -hmm. And so when the young people of the village wake up somewhat later in the morning, and they get up and they say, oh, oh, look at these wild beasts. They must have fallen off the path. Oh, it must be really dangerous. Maybe we shouldn't walk along it. <laughs> it's the 1950s young people. <laughs> They've been like, um, now he's... The wise man of the village has caused the young people of the village to believe the path is dangerous. Would it be right to say he's communicated? Well, let's consider a few generations later the next wise man of the village, which is to communicate the same thing to the young people of the village. But he goes about it in a slightly different way. That is, he might take a, the corpse of a rabbit which he's killed and sort of gesture and drag it towards the bottom of the cliff, and the young people of the village say, what's he trying to do? That's very odd. And then... They eventually realise and they understand that the wise man of the village wants to convey to them that the path is dangerous. And he, he can do it kind of literally with large dead animals or small dead animals or even drawings of dead animals. But why do the young people believe this or not? What they do is they recognise his intention to communicate that. I mean, this is mine. 
this is a thoroughly different type of communication. I notice that now the young people need to have some faith in the wise man of the village. If they think he's completely foolish, they will not believe him. They'll say, oh, he's going on about that path again. And they need a model of how his mind works. And then he's, so now this is between minds. So they're recognising intention. This is a completely different game, completely different type of inference. But it's still not linguistic communication. What about language? Well, communicating with language is different again, because now we've got a conventional symbol system. And now you don't need to put nearly as much effort into the mind. You can just say the path's dangerous. <laughs> and the only reasonable interpretation of these words is that it wants you to believe the path is dangerous. So this takes a lot of the effort and the uncertainty and so on out of recognising intentions to communicate. And it's almost possible to think that words simply have objective meanings, and maybe they do. Um, but this is a much more solidified, standardised sort of communication. But it's still ultimately in the framework of recognition of intention. And what large language models do, they don't have intention. They spit out text at the moment. And this seems a very fundamental difference between languages. They really are inhuman. Now, of course, we're going to be treating them as inhuman, as human. We're going to be thinking they have communicative intention. People will be falling in love with language models. Um, I think they already are. Probably. <laughs> um, so, but these seem pretty fundamental differences. Let's take one more fundamental difference. Um, people call people call hallucinations. These large language models just don't seem to be true. They just seem to say things which aren't true all the time. When I ask about programming in Julia, which is a less known programming language than Python, at least 50% of the, of the answers are gloriously and intricately wrong. <laughs> the first time this happened, I couldn't really believe it. The thing suggested a new syntax for defining types. I thought, wow, that would be useful. <laughs> Just quite see how it works. And I spent kind of two hours searching through the Julia documentation and trying it out. And eventually I realised that it had been completely hallucinated. But a lot of them are very useful hallucinations. They might be useful for the Julia designers to then incorporate that syntax. I was thinking of emailing them and suggesting it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe it's been suggested, but it's never been implemented. Or... <laughs> I was trying to draw a rectangle once and have it filled uh -huh. in rather than just an outline. Uh -huh. And so I asked it and it said, well, set the filled argument to true. And right. so I tried that and then it says unrecognised argument filled. So it just made up this argument. but. That yes. argument should be there. <laughs> That'd be very Absolutely. useful. <laughs> it's, 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 um, very good. Um, so, so let's just think about maybe why these, I mean, essentially these language models are not grounded and they don't have purpose. And this is one reason why they're, hallucination is a terrible word. It should be confabulation. Mm -hmm. a, a common complaint is if you get it to suggest some references on a topic, then it'll sometimes give you very plausible looking references which are papers by well-known researchers which do not in fact exist. Mm -hmm. So what's happened? Well, the language model is drawing this reference from a probability distribution of plausible paper titles because it's seen hundreds of thousands of paper titles. It, know what, it knows what's plausible. So it's doing generative modelling of paper titles. You can't blame it. <laughs> the problem is in some contexts, that's exactly what it wants to do. And in fact, during its training, that's exactly what it wants to do. But it's asking rather a lot for the language model to recognise during its training that in every paper dated 2023, the references will be for an earlier time in 2023 or earlier underneath, and they will actually exist, and there will be things it's already seen. 
people actually won't have already seen them all unless all its training data is in chronological order. And even if it has seen them all, it's a lot to ask for it to memorize all of them. Precisely. So what, there are some contexts, in, exactly, you, you, there are some contexts in which you want it to draw the paper title from the empirical distribution, the set of paper titles it has seen. Mm-hmm. And there are some contexts in which you'd want it to make it up. Mm-hmm. And it's which it does will depend on the very subtle ways on the intention. So there'll be all sorts of situations like this where it will confabulate. And people are suggesting you can cure confabulation by having it look up papers. Well, well yes, but this doesn't solve the it confabulating the Julia type system. <laughs> <laughs> Unless it has a Julia interpreter built in. Unless it has a... I, so, so there'll be an awful lot of engineering. And I, I think there's a phrase I rather like, the jagged edge of capability of these models. Oh, and then a final difference. These large language models, they still can't do long multiplication. Now they've read every book, every little child's textbook on long multiplication, which has ever been published. 10,000 of them, probably. <laughs> they still can't do it. And they don't know they can't do it. And they don't really know what a long multiplication is. They can stochastically parrot a definition of long multiplication. But a child can learn multiplication, long multiplication from one book, from practicing and thinking about it and realizing that there is a self-consistent crowded system of rules which produces a self-consistent system of multiplication, which the child then understands and then the child can do. And I'm sure people are trying to implement systems of reasoning like this, but that's another, you know, that's a fairly fundamental advance which maybe we haven't yet made. Yeah, so this slower deliberative thinking sounds like something that language models are always going to find extremely difficult. But I wonder if you combine language models with lots of pre-existing systems that can do these things, like the Wolfram Alpha plugin, or if you give it access to interpreters so it can try running code, then do you suddenly have a system that can do almost anything? And what would be left then? Well, maybe. I mean, I never said they always won't be able to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I said the current language models can't, and so it's, mm-hmm. they, they look so impressive. Um, I, I mean, uh, but I quite agree with you. I'm sure that I would expect that fairly soon, actually, we will have deliberative systems of this type. I don't know how soon, but I, I think uh, that design principles for deliberative systems, well, they may arise by accident out of combining large language models with other systems, or it might need a new theory, one or the other, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But that seems quite a fundamental advance. It hasn't quite happened. But I wouldn't be surprised if it did. I wouldn't be surprised if we woke up a month from now. Well, I mean, <laughs> one day a month from now. <laughs> and you, we, we found that suddenly language models really understood, truly understood long multiplication. Mm. Um, but, but that hasn't kind of happened yet. And what other differences are there with cognition? Well, I find animal cognition is really impressive. The little birds the size of sparrows managed to spend the winter in England eating, finding, without fail, every day, 30% of their body weight in food, needing it and avoiding predators and flying around and not bumping into things, mostly. <laughs> and we're not surprised if a sparrow survives an entire winter. Well, we, we can't build a robot that does that. Animal cognition seems extraordinarily robust and resourceful, conceptually limited in many ways. It's also immensely rapidly learned. My my favourite examples are birds in Australia called megapodes, and these have a remarkable life cycle. 
where the eggs are incubated in piles of steaming manure. <laughs> and when the egg hatches, the chick is quite highly developed. These birds are related to chickens, but they're more mature when they're born. They, they, they peck their way out of the egg. They climb to the top of manure. They stand up. They never see either of their parents. They stand up, look around, rather surprised to see the world, and run off into the bush. <laughs> and as far as anyone can tell, they have a fully adult behaviour within 48 hours. Wow. Now, these have these are not taught by their parents. They're not imitating their parents. They're doing it on their own. They are born with a little supply of egg yolk inside them, which is their first meal. It's not clear that they do a lot of reinforcement learning. Uh, <laughs> I think they peck their feet a lot um, and then stop. So that feels like reinforcement learning to me. But <laughs> So all the reinforcement learning has been done during evolution. Right. And, and so somehow the nervous system has been designed for very rapid development and learning. And these birds are, you know, they're not altogether exceptional. They're not so different from other birds. I think they don't know about cats, which is rather a disadvantage. <laughs> um, are these New Zealand birds? I, I think they live in Australia. Um, and you, you really don't want to have a, a bush, a brush turkey in your back garden because it will scratch your entire back garden and possibly your neighbours as well into a, an enormous pile of manure, which it will then guard. <laughs> So once large language models are incorporated with lots mm -hmm. of plugins that can do the kind of deliberative thinking that they're currently bad at, do you see that kind of integrated system as a form of nascent AGI? I don't know. I, I have a suspicion it's, it'll take some basic conceptual advances, but I think those will happen. I'm not sure that a large language model talking to itself is really quite going to do it. But that's just my opinion. I, I mean, little birds don't talk to themselves, as far as we know, and they, they are very resourceful in surviving in a pretty hostile environment. So they have capabilities which our current AIs and robots don't lack. It's, it's not general intelligence. And we may be a little caught up in our own verbal intelligence. I, is in, I mean, it's a, it's a very nice question. Um, to what extent do we have an ability similar to a large language model? You just start talking and then listen to yourself. Well, you can learn. I learn quite a lot listening to myself talking, actually. I'm just <laughs> lecturing away. I think, oh, wow, that's, that's quite interesting. Um, which is a very curious sensation. Mm -hmm. But it is as if one's reasoning to oneself through talking. And then you cycle back over over it and you talk again and so on. And the process of writing, of putting your words on the paper and organizing it into thoughts, this is a very powerful way of thinking. You learn the logical consequences of some of your beliefs. Yeah. You, well, you have to sort of make it consistent and develop it. And in, partly writing is an extension of your memory, of uh, your working memory. So pencil and paper is very important. Keyboard and screen is important for that. But also it's talking to yourself as well. Or I, that's what I find. And it's a very powerful way of making your thoughts much better and more consistent and more extensive than just talking to yourself. So, but I'm not. Certainly, supposing you have a self-consistent understanding of arithmetic, 
you fully understand how to do long multiplication, you really understand how to do long multiplication of carrying, maybe you understand different ways of doing it, that it's the same multiplication sum if you split numbers into tens and units and do it all separately and add it up, or if you do long multiplication, and you thoroughly understand how to add and multiply and divide and subtract fractions and all that. Supposing you have that understanding, could you understand have this understanding by talking yourself as a large language model? Well, maybe, but maybe we all know people who do this. Um, <laughs> but uh, actually, actually, you're you're terribly prone to error. Talking, you can say things which sound plausible and they aren't really plausible. And we all know that there are these systems of, if you like, verbal discourse, these bodies of opinion. I mean, if you hear someone who's just arrived at university and they start talking about the internal contradictions of late-stage capitalism, you may suspect that if you probed hard, they, they may not actually have a fully self-consistent and worked-out theory of what all this is. <laughs> no comments. But they can talk about it. <laughs> I know I didn't. <laughs> Well, let's take mathematics, for example. Yeah. It's, it's true that if you just wonder to yourself about mathematics and come up with ideas, mm -hmm. that you can be led terribly astray. But it what is. keeps us grounded is checking with axioms and yes. deliberative thinking. Yes. So could you imagine a large language model paired with a theorem checker becoming a theorem and proof generator? Yes, I mean, something like that. I, I, I mean, my guess would be is that we need some theory of self-consistent deliberative systems and self-consistent deliberation, and that simply hooking up an LLM to, uh, to lean or subroutines something. to lean or something probably won't do it. But maybe you can get a long way with that. Maybe you can get further than people with that. Mm -hmm. I can imagine training it like a game, like Alpha Zero. Could be. I, I, I mean, so... Here, I mean, we're looking at the differences between intelligences and capabilities, and I, I can't decide, define in a general way what intelligence is, but a capability, well, if the thing can prove non-trivial theorems, that's capable. Yes. Yeah. And uh, so if, robots can, if a robot can bring me a cup of coffee when I ask it to, avoiding things on the floor and finding the coffee maker in the cupboard if necessary, that's capable. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. intelligent. Well, intelligent is intelligent is such a tricky word. I remember long, long ago when I was in a computer shop in Cambridge and I was looking happily at dot matrix printers, the uh, sales assistant said to me, that one is fully intelligent, of course. I said, <laughs> I said oh, I was rather impressed. We had it back then. <laughs> I had it back then. What he meant was that the dot matrix head would return to the left-hand side if there was nothing else to print. Often, so it wouldn't actually travel the whole way along the line. But that's a capability. <laughs> that's kind of thermostat-level intelligence. Right? <laughs> yes. So I think what you're touching on is what Holden Karnofsky has coined PASTA, which stands for Process for Automating Scientific and Technological Development. And he talks about this because it sidesteps some of these thorny questions mm -hmm. you've raised about what is intelligence or general intelligence, and instead focuses on what he believes to be one of the key capabilities that could transform the trajectory we're on in a potentially dangerous way. Once you have a model that can automate the process of science and the process of technological development, a subset of that is AI development. Mm. And you could mm. end up with a, or he believes you could end up with a runaway system. Right. So 
we've been talking about today and maybe a little bit about tomorrow. This is really the day after tomorrow. But really, it's the logical extension of these ideas. I don't see that there's anything that any capability that people have, which AI computer system couldn't sometime have. So yes, I, I mean, there's a lot of noise at the moment about AI being essential for science. And what they mean is, oh gosh, now we can predict 200 million protein structures and whether they'll stick to each other. Well, that's marvellous. But I wouldn't describe this as really intelligent. Um, it's a great capability to have, but it's fully under our control. Now, for combinatorial optimization of things like circuit boards or designs, uh, you can use reinforcement learning in optimization. That's a major advance. Well, it's better than integer programming, right? Or depth first search. So, what people are talking about now is quite different from that. That is taking over the central intellectual task of theory development and formation and automating the whole cycle. I mean, it would be very unwise to say this is impossible. That's a long <laughs> way away. But then if that happens, then you do have this extraordinary possibility of runaway improvement, which is very, it's very hard for us to think about. <laughs> Indeed. So some people have argued that this uh, runaway system, or even before that, just that once we get to sort of human level mm -hmm. capabilities, that this could pose serious risks to humanity as a whole. Do you take that kind of worry seriously? Um, yes. Uh, okay, let's... So what we're talking about, just to be clear, we are talking about things which don't exist today. Today's, today's large language models, they may be used for some bad purposes, but they are really not intelligence in this sense. It's not going to be tomorrow, but say in 10 years or 20 years, now within the horizon of people plenty of the majority of us now living, maybe we can come to systems with these types of capabilities. So I think a lot of people are very uncomfortable about speculating in this way because there seem to be no rules, right? What can we reasonably say about these systems or what may happen in a science fiction world, which in some, maybe some fundamental conceptual ways hasn't been developed yet after maybe one, two, or three conceptual breakthroughs of the order of reinforcement learning, maybe AI systems will become much, much more capable than they are now. One, two, or three? One, two, or three? I, I don't know how many. Um, one, two, or many. Um, <laughs> I, and I think a lot of, so, so, some people enjoy speculating about the far future, and are comfortable doing it, but why should we believe anything they say? Why should, why should they, people believe anything we say, we speculate about it? Is there some way in which we can reasonably talk about it? Are there, are there some things which we can definitely say about this far future, which has become closer, and give some reasonably convincing arguments as to what may or may not happen? But because I thoroughly respect that some people just see speculation of this type as pointless or very uncomfortable. Um, and here I think Jeff Hinton has really... Well, the first thing I'd like to say is that the reason why I think this is coming is because there is a long, arduous route to AI from reverse engineering the brain. And this is very slow. It's very difficult. The brain is immensely complicated. We know vast, huge numbers of facts about the brain, except how it works. Um, we, we don't know the principles of how we think 
and how the ideas we develop are correct or not, and so on. We just don't know it. We don't know how that's done in the brain. We know something about the vision system. We know little bits about different parts of the brain. I'm, I hope that doesn't offend neuroscientists too much. <laughs> but this sounds um, an extraordinary long way away. I mean, we can't even do C. elegans yet, this worm of only a thousand cells. That's true. Um, even though we've known all of its synaptic junctions by name. For, uh, but nevertheless, at the moment, there is a growing connection um, between deep learning and neuroscience. And my impression is, I'm, I'm not an expert in this area, my impression is that the flow of ideas and techniques is from AI and machine learning into neuroscience, both techniques for analyzing neural data and in terms of what they desperately need are models of how the brain might work. Now, imagine the difference if we actually had a decent model of how the cortical column worked and what it does, and suddenly the world, the world could change quite rapidly. It is, as you say, a very long road, but there's no reason to say that we don't get to the end of that road at some point. Mm -hmm. So what the machine learning community is trying to do is to take shortcuts mm -hmm. to highly capable systems and whether they'll succeed in doing that and whether they'll discover completely unexpected systems along the way, we don't know. So where does the, where does the risk come from? Surely automating scientific development and, and technology would be a tremendous boon to humanity. Well, yes. Um, so far, technology has been good to us. We for are, the most part. <laughs> for the most part, we're sitting very comfortably in a room with lights and heat and, and we... Well, let's let's look at some near-term risks and from that try to go to some longer-term risks. One near-term risk, I think what we're seeing in the news now, is drones are starting to be used in war. At the moment, the drones are rather on the level of aircraft in the First World War. During the First World War, at first, aircraft were used purely for reconnaissance and artillery spotting. And the pilots would wave to each other from each side as they flew over the trenches. Uh, then the pilots started shooting at each other with pistols. Uh, then there came the crucial invention of a machine gun that fired through the propeller. That came in two stages. And then aerial war was born. Uh, bombs were taken by hand and thrown out of the plane. So at the moment, the drones don't contain, well, as far as we know, as far as has been reported so far, they don't contain much artificial intelligence. Uh, I think uh, machine vision systems probably take up too much electricity and would reduce the drone's range and increase its weight. Uh, but the intense development of weapons involving some AI is, I think, unstoppable, uh, simply because machine vision is now open source and people will be doing it. And this gives the possibility of some very historically rapid developments of systems for automatically killing people. Why does that matter? Well, if you can build a lot of machines that automatically kill people, then uh, this means that you can kill people without being risking being killed yourself. And, and so th this changes the tactical balance of war. It changes a lot of things. And this is quite sudden. Now, no, this, this, this is an extinction risk. No, but it's something which might change our society quite a lot. One could still believe, though, that if you advance technology as a whole, mm -hmm. 
then society would be better off, even if it leads to. Absolutely. Um, let's consider another rather plausible end state, a situation we would wish to avoid, which is that throughout history there have been plenty of tyrannies, um, of uh, tyrannical regimes, against which rebellion is impossible. That control is too complete. Uh, so Sophie Scholl, uh, famously in the 1940s, in, in 1943, I think, in, in Germany, said somebody must make a start and went off and distributed leaflets, but um, she was stopped. Uh, but there have been plenty of examples of regimes with ordinary human characteristics where the people in power and in control wish to suppress any possible dissent or rebellion. Well, modern surveillance technology, and particularly AI surveillance technology, would give extraordinary new possibilities. I mean, it would be awful. You could have a society where you had to carry around your mobile phone and keep it charged and it listened to you all the time. And if you said anything wrong, you could get reported. That would be possible already. It's possible already. And the problem in applications of AI, um, AI can be applied at scale. You can apply one little version of intelligence or one capable system at scale. And you replace perhaps many, many people who would have to do the same thing. The problem is that, uh, now of course, your system may be better than the people, maybe more accurate, it may be less biased. Uh, the people might be lazy, malicious, biased, prejudiced, taking, making wrong decisions, and falling asleep and inattentive and all those things, and your AI isn't. Uh, and of course, you can test the AI to see if it's biased or not. It's, Yannick yeah, has pointed out, and with a person, you can take the bias out of the AI, whereas taking the bias out of a person, very hard. The trouble is you can also make very big mistakes. Because of the scale. Because of the scale. You can replicate at scale, and then you can make, make very big mistakes. This is, this again seems new. So this is a, a risk of misuse. Yes. Geoffrey Hinton has written his blog post called How Rogue AIs Might Arise. Mm -hmm. What do you think about this idea that instead of just being used by humans, technology could escape our control? Um, I think it's, how can I say, I don't want to say, oh yes, that's very possible. Mm -hmm. I'd say this is very hard to think about. Mm -hmm. I don't see how we can be certain one way or the other. And I don't see how we can meaningfully start giving probabilities one way or the other. Mm -hmm. But Jeff Hinton is one of the people who has perhaps most simply and clearly given some thoughts about the future artificial, the future AIs that don't exist yet, but which may, and what we can reasonably say about these systems we haven't invented yet. Um, and I, I think he's made three points, and they're all good, and they're all very hard to dismiss. His first argument is that in principle and in the future, AIs may learn and think better than we do. The reason is that all of our knowledge and experience and ability, the way that our brains function, I think one of the things we do know from neuroscience, is that this is encoded in the strengths of synapses in our brain. And we have about 100 million million synapses, 10 to the 14. And the synapses, they're rather like weights in a neural network, and the inspiration for neural network weights. And somehow the brain adjusts the weights of these synapses, and each synapse has to adjust its weights. There are so many of them. Each one has to adjust its weights from local information. So it knows about the neurons 
which side of it, the presynaptic and the postsynaptic firing, and it knows about chemicals that come in locally. And we know quite a lot about how synapses change their strength, but not everything. Now, what, as far as we know, synapses in the brain cannot do is to compute a gradient of some remote performance index with respect to the strength of that individual synapse. They can't do backpropagation. They can't do backpropagation. They can't, they can't, not only can't they do backpropagation, it's very hard to see how you can get gradients in any way. Right. Um, the best way we have a gradient. So the, the backpropagation algorithm may, in some senses, be better than the algorithms that we have in the brain. And the slightly wider point is not only is backpropagation better, but if we understand how the synapses change their strength in the brain, well, then the algorithmic theorists and the mathematicians can get to work and think of better algorithms than evolution devised for optimizing them. And Hinton points out that the largest language models now have uh, hundreds of billions weights, so they're less than 1% of the size of the number of weights in the brain. And yet maybe they, the, those networks, they've been trained on superhuman amounts of text and they've kind of remembered it all. And so maybe they contain more information. So maybe already we have systems where through, through this magic of gradient descent through backpropagation, we've actually stored more information than in the brain. And they're not as capable as the brain in many ways, but in some ways maybe they're more capable already. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's point one. That's, hmm, well, we could have more capable systems. His second point, um, he, he rather picturesquely phrases it as that some AIs are, some networks are mortal and some are immortal. What he means by a mortal network is one which is randomly constructed. So that, I mean, your brain and my brain and the listeners' brains are all pretty similar, but there'll be minute differences in random construction during the development. So we couldn't actually transfer any weights from any synaptic strengths from between our brains because we can't figure out which synapses correspond to which. I mean, it's not possible to do. So whatever you learn dies with you. But with artificial neural networks, we have these great square matrices or rectangular matrices of weights, and we can transfer those across. And that means that one intelligent system can be replicated many times and copied and so on. So there's this rec- replicability. And this is something, again, which seems to be superior to biology. Oh, that's two strikes by which artificial intelligences, we can reasonably expect them to be superior to biological in the end. What's then the third one? I think is a little vaguer, but it's still a great point. And the point is that if we are going to build AIs, we and they're immensely capable. We have a we have a system which can think. We have a system which, if you give it a body, it could do things. Well, that'd be useful. <laughs> There's already work on this. That's the, I think there is some work. It's called robotics, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but incorporating language models into robotics. Absolutely, I think that it's a. The deep minds has some very impressive recent work on this, and so if you can have an AI system, which, for example, you have a, a wonderful idea for a product you want, might want to sell with, I don't know, singing coffee makers or something, um, <laughs> then you want to have a a factory and a marketing plan and a product design and everything, 
And so you casually ask the thing. I say, I've great, had a great idea for a singing coffee maker, which wakes me up with my favourite operatic arias, or <laughs> whatever it predicts the music that I either like or don't like, or salsa marches or whatever. Um, and then it'll design you a factory. It'll look for the place to build it. It'll say how you've got to make them and what you've got to order and how much it look up, how much it costs and everything. All in a few seconds. Well, the pressure to give AIs the capability to actually do this will be enormous. The economic incentive. The economic incentive, imagine. So I don't see how you don't get AIs. That there'll be enormous incentives to build AIs which are capable of doing things in the real world. And in order to do things in the real world, well, you are given an overall goal of building a singing coffee, coffee maker factory. Um, but then you have to fill in all sorts of sub-goals along the way. And so there will be AI actors with goals and sub-goals and extremely capable. So how can you then be sure that what they are trying to do is what we want them to do? So this is a rather vague point. Uh, and yet, if we have truly capable systems, they will be capable of creative behavior, creatively um, coming up with creative solutions with new sub-goals and implementing them. What's so bad about sub-goals? What might their effects be? We really don't know. There are plenty of examples of unfortunate decisions from our human industry. Uh, what unfortunate decisions might there be from uh, sub-goals in war? I think you certainly want your drones to have sub-goals. Mm -hmm. If you are sending drones over to attack things, the thing about a ship-based missile is you fire it over the horizon, so you can't control it all the way to the target. For quite some time, missiles are fired towards a certain area, and they then select a target, because they can't be targeted all the way. So uh, these, I, I don't, again, see that there is a fundamental difference, um, conceptual difference, between intelligent weapons and a minefield. A mine is intelligent because it knows when it's been stepped on. That's not a very high level of intelligence. But we already set up extremely dangerous and horrible automatic things. And as I say, the pressure of open-sourced capabilities during wartime is using these things is going to be immense. With the singing coffee machine example, it seems like sub-goals couldn't really be a problem there. I mean, we've come a tremendous way with natural language understanding, mm -hmm. and language models now seem to have a great deal of common sense. Surely, if you had a model that could generate factory plans and contracts, etc., and you asked it, please make me a singing coffee machine factory, it would have enough common sense to understand what kind of sub-goals you would be happy with and which you wouldn't be. Yeah, this, this type of argument is very appealing. The type of argument is we're imagining the intelligent system as if it's a person. And because our only, our only experience of intelligent systems of this type is, is, a, is a people. Mm -hmm. And so many things which are obvious to a person, we, we would assume be, would be obvious to planners and so on. And so we assume they're going to happen. Whereas... Actually, the system is a computer program of some kind. 
And I'm sure that over an immensely complicated design process and immensely complicated training processes, one would try to build in guards, guardrails and criteria and so on, controls, so that it produced good designs and develop feasible sub-goals. But ultimately, it's a computer system. <laughs> uh, and, of course, there are people who do unreasonable things, and it's an inhuman system. Oh, a non-human. I don't want to say inhuman. That has <laughs> It's a non-human system. And uh, it's very hard to say a priori whether one can make such things safe. I'm sure they will be mar- marvellously safe until, until they become dangerous. Right. But at the time they become dangerous, we switch them off. Ah. Uh, it's... The, the goals that these things have are ultimately... I, mean, I think it's a very strong argument that the goals, or primary goals, that these systems would have would be set by their users. And of course, users can set bad goals. Uh, so I find it implausible that uh, such systems would suddenly develop an, uh, a very bad goal like you know, converting the entire world into paperclips, the famous example, and then carry it through. It'd be nice to have proofs that that wasn't so. <laughs> uh, um, um, obviously, the system would not be designed to do that. The system would be outside its design parameters. You really want, wouldn't want that to happen. And again, there's a tendency, because there are only examples of intelligent systems, or capable systems, or people, people have all sorts of animalistic motives. They have good motives and bad motives and so on. And these are really kind of rooted in what it is to be human. Machines won't have motives in the same sense. It's an absolute fallacy to think that a large language model has any motives of this type. It doesn't have emotions. It doesn't have motivations. It doesn't have desires. What about goals? It doesn't have... um, Goals as... Well, goal is a very difficult word. We can think of it as a... once In one sense of a goal, is a goal that we experience internally. We formulate as a conscious goal. I want to become a millionaire. I want to travel in Central Asia. And... But as Daniel Dennett argued, a goal is a tool for explaining behaviour and describing behaviour. He calls this the intentional stance. That's, that's exactly, that's right. And so in considering AIs, you need to be very careful which type of goal you're talking about. Is there a planning system with explicit goals that are actually represented in some interpretable and grounded way inside the system? Or are we attempting to explain its behaviour by... Uh, not knowing how it works, understanding, uh, having a mechanistic explanation of how it works, of what causes what, but instead instead trying to explain its behaviour in terms of beliefs and desires. And we're quite good at explaining people's behaviour in terms of beliefs and desires, because we're people and we know a lot about human, you have, you have a lifetime's experience of human beliefs and desires. And different people are pretty much the same. You know, some people are different, maybe, but... Um, but an AI is thoroughly different. So it's very dangerous, or it's very problematic in the sense that it's going to be difficult or unreliable or, or deceptive, um, self-deceptive, to try to explain a capable AI's activity in terms of its beliefs and desires. 
we may we may make very wrong predictions mm. if we do that because it's something not like us. I suppose the way we pursue goals is by reasoning about what we anticipate to happen under various actions and then mm. choosing the one that best leads to those desired outcomes. Whereas something like a reinforcement learning agent might not have a goal explicitly stored in its mm -hmm. network and instead just intuits good actions in one forward pass. Well, or, or it may have set up, it may have approximated some value function and got it quite wrong. Mm -hmm. um, reinforcement learning works by, or well, some forms of it work by approximating some value function and you want to take the gradient. Mm. Well, this is pretty dodgy. I mean, it's this implementing deep reinforcement learning is really hard because your approximated value function is likely to be not nearly correct over the whole state space. And and yet you're choosing action or optimizing your you're choosing a policy by following a gradient of small changes in your approximated value function. So if your approximation is wrong, well, your approximated value function could be pretty good with wrong gradients here and there, which will cause inexplicable actions, since this happens all the time. Because the, the agent can only see a finite number of states, mm -hmm. and so learns the rewards in those states, yes. and then has some implicit extrapolation of those Absolutely. into the entire state space. And if we take the intentional stance towards it and say, this is what its goal is, we're implicitly assuming we understand how it would behave right. in those unexplored states, whereas we in fact have no idea what extrapolation it's working from. I think that's a beautiful way to explain it. Yeah. I'm, I mean, taking the <laughs> intentional sources, <laughs> trying to explain what an RL agent is trying to do is really hard. Mm -hmm. so, but you could take this two ways. You could say, okay, we can't apply the intentional stance, at least in the limit, to AI systems. And that's a good thing because it means it will likely just flail around in environments it hasn't found before. Or, it's, I mean, I, I mean, I think this is one of the, personally, I think this is one of the very big differences between animal behavior and RL behavior in that uh, animals are very capable and they have very robust behavior of a wide range of circumstances with very little experience. And this comes from evolution. Reinforcement learning agents with a, you know, as you say, that the fraction of the state space that we can actually explore in any practical problem is tiny. It's like you know, a little line on a piece of sheet of paper compared to the size of the solar system. And have you explicitly generated generalized as you, exactly as you say, have you generalized? I mean, extrapolation is rather a poor form of knowledge discovery. Mm -hmm. um, so is your extrapolation valid at all? Um, is your system going to do completely unexpected things? I think one's really got no idea. Um, I think the worry is, is it going to remain capable with some goal that we didn't anticipate in those new environments? Mm. Or is it just going to fail around? Flailing would be great. Uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe in critical positions it wouldn't be great, but better than perhaps pursuing a goal that we don't want. Well, I mean, reinforcement learning is more complicated than that because it's not just about rewards and policies. Uh, a reinforcement learner also has to experiment. Now, of course, when you first write a reinforcement learning algorithm, you make it do a little random experiments by randomizing the choice of actions slightly. Well, that's all well and good. 
Um, the trouble is that if, uh, for example, Christopher Columbus had um, done Epsilon Greedy explorations, traveling <laughs> north, south, east, or west randomly, I, I don't think he would have crossed the Atlantic, mm-hmm. which might have been a good or a bad thing. So in a debate earlier this year, Jan LeCun made the argument that if it's not safe, we're not going to build it. The audience laughed at him, but I think he does actually have a point, that it's in no one's interest to build something that would wipe out humanity or cause huge risk to humanity, because it would cause huge risks to themselves. So why would anyone do it? Well, I won't laugh. (laughs) But I think uh, we have already the example of the nuclear arms race, where because of a game theory setup of a competition between two superpowers, both superpowers continued building more and more missiles, they increased the power of the warheads, and they did this on the basis of game theory, that they needed uh, more missiles, uh, increasingly large numbers of missiles, with actually almost no limit except expense, so that the other person, the other power could not do a first strike and destroy all their missiles. So this is why we have today nuclear submarines with nuclear missiles capable of wiping out whole cities, ready to fire, uh, and we still have missiles in land-based silos. And this game theory had an effect and caused, I don't know, hundreds of billions of dollars of expenditure in the creation of missiles, which could and still can. That is already an extinction risk as the result of game theory. Mm -hmm. Now, making and developing those missile systems took a lot more time than developing AI is likely to take. So what concerns me slightly about AI is that the rapidity of its development, its software, you can disseminate it. Um, There's, in my view, absolutely no prospect stopping this kind of development because of the open source. We have these very powerful open source tools which are available now. And people coming of age now, it may be really hard for you to imagine what life was like without open source. Uh, I'm sitting in UCL. uh, Back in the late 1990s, I went into a computer shop on Tottenham Court Road, close by here, and I gazed longingly (laughs) at a CD-ROM with Microsoft Visual C++ on it, which cost nearly a thousand pounds, and I seriously considered buying it. Wow. (laughs) Um, Today, the range and sophistication of open source software is extraordinary. The availability of computing power is extraordinary. And and so when breakthroughs are made, development's going to be fast. That's another concerning thing. So to say, if it's not safe, we won't build it is simply absolutely false. We already did. So how how are you imagining this playing out? So if you've got a government building some AI systems, what would they be using it for? What would be the risk that they're ignoring in, in order to get their advantage, their game theoretic advantage? Well, um, with nuclear missiles, prediction is a little bit easier because there are fewer missiles are not intellectually very interesting. They just do one thing. They go up, they come down, and they explode, or they intercept each other. Uh, AI... This is more protean. It's very hard to anticipate. Uh, I mean, there are some known knowns. There are known unknowns, but there are 
unknown unknowns. Uh, and AI is a far more, I mean, point is that software is a much more, as a technology with enormous ranges of uses. And so one can think of a range of different unpleasant and uh, you can think of lots of pleasant things and plenty of other unpleasant things. Imagine the pleasantest things that we have an all-encompassing AI, a bit like super Google, <laughs> which you can ask it any question, you can ask it to do things, and the AI manages everything. You'll have a universal basic income. It's like sitting in a jacuzzi with robots that'll happily bring you anything to eat or drink that you want. <laughs> oh, what if you're sitting in a jacuzzi that's 100 metres wide and 100 metres deep? It's wonderful, but what's there for the people? And I think this is just unimaginable. This is unpredictable. And in many ways, the there are many aspects of life today which would have been unimaginable to people 100 years ago, um, and yet we've coped, so maybe we will. But the point is that AI is rapidly developable, rapidly deployable, and potentially very capable. Now, today, uh, there's an enormous noise about machine learning. But in fact, machine learning is actually used in only a relatively small number of tasks. And machine learning in the form of neural networks, which have been trained from data, are almost entirely used for decisions where mistakes are cheap. You need to make lots of decisions, like which advertisements to display to somebody after a Google search. If Google displays you completely inappropriate advertisements, well, it's just prevented itself from earning, on average, a few pennies. It's not a serious mistake. This technology, although it's kind of promising, it appears capable. It's not yet deployable for all sorts of problems, simply because if you train a neural network from scratch on a large amount of data, what happens? You get a classifier that works. The trouble is the classifier hasn't really understood the data, and it may make completely wrong predictions on related data, uh, which is outside its initial distribution. Um, so there's no, it's very hard to guarantee that the network is making its decisions for the correct reasons. The second problem is that and people are making immense efforts for interpretability and explainability, but that it is still very difficult for, for example, a doctor to take the result of an artificial neural network which presents some diagnosis and then to discuss the diagnosis with the network. Uh, there is simply, they can't communicate with each other. Mm -hmm. And now the explainability methods are you know, getting quite good for neural network developers, but they're very far from being able to discuss reasons, you know, reasons for possible interpretations. This goes back to the neural network not actually understanding the reason why it's making its predictions. It's fitted a, an immensely complicated decision surface to a large amount of data, and this will generalize under certain conditions. If, as a result of some conceptual breakthroughs, we get beyond that, then the possible areas for, for application of AI become much greater, and problems become greater. Now, a very important reason, which I think is people don't widely, I'm sure people have recognized it, but it's not widely recognized, why it's almost conceptually wrong to employ this type of trained network AI for difficult decisions. 
is that there are many kind of decision problems where we are working out what the decision surface is as a result of the data we get, as a result of thinking about that data. For example, legal decisions. Um, I always prefer specific examples. <laughs> uh, we want to dis uh, if we if a student wants to put in for extenuating circumstances because they they couldn't uh, they, they do some piece of work and they want us to take that into account, then there's a certain deadline by which they have to do it. But should we relax the deadline if the student has a communication impairment, which means they find filling in the form, the extenuating circumstances form itself difficult? Right. Well, that's a difficult question. We need to think about this in terms of natural justice and, 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 and setting precedents and all the implications of the decision. It's not just a training example. Extrapolation has to be worked out. Extrapolation, one wants extrapolation with understanding. Yeah. You need to understand in some way the basis of the, the, the reasons for these decisions. And, and that's simply not that. Um, so, so this means that the applicability of AI to problems where mistakes are expensive is much less than you think it would be. And then one can get disasters where you try to apply it. Um, for example, in, you have an AI system to try to give recommendations on whether parole should be granted. Yeah. Uh, I feel this is not the kind of problem to which simple pattern matching systems should be applied. In a case like that, you can well imagine the government understanding this and stopping doing it. Yes. But if you have two companies competing and their, their risk is substantial from using AI systems for automated decisions, but the risk of not using them is becoming bankrupt because they're outcompeted by the company that is using them. Right. So you could end up with this race to the bottom Absolutely. where all companies are sort of handing over decision-making control to AI systems that they would rather nobody was using. Um, one might argue this is already happening in financial trading. Mm -hmm. um, in financial trading, again, we have one of these game theoretic situations where the speed of trading has gone up and up. And so now trades are made. I don't know what the time scale is, microseconds? I'm not sure. I think it's almost nanoseconds now. Almost nanoseconds now. Well, why? Why does anyone need to trade on a nanosecond timescale? What economic purpose is served by this? Well, they claim it's price discovery. <laughs> um, not sure you need not, to know the price that quickly. <laughs> I do not believe them. <laughs> um, I believe that the reason is that in this very complicated adversarial game of trading, the person, the, the organization that can train faster on a shorter time scale will win because it manages to front run the other one or bluff the other one. I don't know. It's very closely guarded exactly what's happening. Now, is this economically beneficial. This is exactly one of these game theoretic situations where we're using technology and there are enormous incentives. A lot of money has been spent in applying technology to increase the speeding speed of trading to nanoseconds. They claim that oh, trade the market is deep and liquid. I, this has been disputed by economists. Um, and I would ask a very simple question, which is that uh, if this is saving ordinary investors and traders who are trading for human purposes on human timescales money, how come all these high-frequency traders are making so much profit? Where does this come from? Right. It comes from the slower traders. Right. So 
I don't know if the high one could describe the high frequency traders as systematically front running everybody in the market. <laughs> uh, it's very hard to find out because I'm sure their methods are pr pr proprietary. But it's very hard for me to see this as a social system. So this is an example of a very unwelcome game theoretic situation where people have developed socially destructive technology. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not destructive. Maybe it's just useless. If it's very profitable for them, they yeah. love it. But they're, they're, they're spending millions on undersea cables to transmit trades at the speed of light. And presumably, all they do is undercut each other. They don't provide additional value to society. And they would rather none of them had to spend that money on undersea cables. Well, absolutely. I, I think it was even they, they set up microwave radio towers because, of course, microwaves travel faster through air than right. light travels through fibre. So where you can do it, you use point-to-point -point radio tower connections. This is also an example of institutional capture. Um, the, the arguments about whether this is socially useful or not are rather complicated. Maybe there are some arguments that it is useful, there are some valid arguments that it's useful, and maybe there are valid arguments that it's not. I would suspect not. But banning it, how do you ban it when it's making so much money? Yeah. Uh, so a country that bans AI technologies would fall behind other countries. And so again, you've got this situation where you're willing to accept the risks of the technology itself because they're less than the risks of other countries beating you to it. Well, yes, I mean, you, you get these game theoretic situations. And, and certainly in making decisions, there is a pre, often a premium in making the decision first. There are very many situations in which you want to make your decision faster than the other guy, and you make money if you do. And so this will lead to AI being applied to that. Of course, <laughs> the extremely dangerous one is in... Um, recognizing a nuclear attack and launching a retaliatory strike and there have been famous there are famous examples where the time scales for the, well the time scale for this has gone down to less than an hour or some say 15 minutes which means that this is the result of exactly a game theoretic problem of this type one problem of credibility in nuclear war is the idea that the human in the loop might decide not to respond with a retaliatory strike. So one solution you might have here is to broadcast to all the other countries, we don't even have a human in the loop. We have an AI that decides whether to perform the retaliatory strike. I mean, here we're getting into things like the plot of Dr. Strangelove. Right. Um, and uh, hitherto, the reliability of computer systems has been such that there have been humans in the loop, and it is believed that there have been one or two occasions when the human decided not mm. to order a retaliatory or not to pass the message up. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think it's, um, it's very important to say that the present state of AI, it's really not intelligent. And it's perhaps rather less useful than it's commonly believed. Um, there are rather few applications of AI still in medical diagnosis. But um, people who've been able to do under controlled conditions machine learning with logistic regression and beat doctors, the consistency of doctors' diagnoses for decade, for a lifetime. Right. Um, we can even beat them with pigeons, <laughs> at least a, uh, an oh, ensemble really? of pigeons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One pigeon is barely above chance, but an ensemble is, is competitive. I see. Um, 
but uh but uh we that there is now far more intense far more researchers are coming into the field uh and there's far more intense development and lots of people, very clever people with good ideas now many of people are working on very tightly defined problems but i tend to believe that there will be there are some undiscovered breakthroughs which are quite likely to happen in in uh, something which can reason and explain its reasoning mm-hmm. doesn't seem as if it should be impossible. So we've talked a lot in the abstract, um, but maybe we can try and put some some numbers on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, predicting the future is a fool's errand, but I think it at least gives us a bit of grounding on what we mean by likely and unlikely if we put some numbers on them, if only them being, oh, greater than the chance of getting heads or less than the chance of getting a six on a dice. Mm-hmm. So, if you'll be a fool for a, yeah. <laughs> for a moment, <laughs> do you have a prediction for what date you think we'll have a 50-50 chance of building human-level AI by? Okay, well, the, the difficult... I, I want to pluck something out of the air, but I'm not going to do that. Well, I am going to do that, but I'm going to do it in a slightly more structured way. I feel the long route to doing that, the long way around, is to have some idea of what the, the cerebral cortex is doing. So some pretty good idea of what a column in the cerebral cortex does and roughly how they're connected together. And so some sketch of its functioning. You only need a hint to be able to start building machines. So if we get some idea back, some significant idea back from the cerebral cortex, so, I mean, I'm going to guess. I'm, I'm going to guess within thirty years, we're getting the, the strong hints. But um, it could be much sooner. I've really no idea. But around twenty fifty three, around something twenty fifty, something like that. Right. And once you have the hint, if there is significant feedback from. Um, from from neuroscience, once you get something useful from neuroscience, then you're talking very rapid development of technical, applica- of technical applications. Because developing technical applications is cheap, programming is cheap, and programs are effective. We've had progress in so many other technologies. We'll have even cheaper computation then mm-hmm. as well. And even cheaper computation, exactly. So at the outside would be my opinion. And that's the slow route. That's the slow route. Okay. <laughs> What's the quick route? Oh, um, I believe that the current paradigms in AI are, are much more limited than people are making up. Uh, but it's not at all clear until it happens what's better. And many people are working on excellent approaches causal modeling and so on. Um, and there I think it's very, very much harder to say. Sidestepping the question and saying, <laughs> saying new advances get adopted worldwide in the open source dissemination within weeks or months. And the, the research cycle is that papers on them happen in the conferences within six months or a year. So if I might push you a little bit, you've said there's a, there's a slow route. 
which would take roughly 30 years. At most. Okay. <laughs> but uh, taking into consideration all paths by which we could get there, what would be your 50-50 date? Uh, again, well, how would I do that? How, how, to think, how to think about that? Well, in 2005, we were still really excited about support vector machines and nobody was using GPUs. And, well, I know, let's go 2001, I think, roughly, was the first circular like viola filter which used boosting and those little rectangular filters to identify a face, locate a face in a picture in real time. This is now standard equipment on all camp. <laughs> yeah. But I remember, I remember actually seeing the demonstration at, at uh, Neurips at the time, and everyone was blown away. Did it at five frames a second. <laughs> so, wow, you can find a face in the picture <laughs> reliably five frames a second with about 200 of rectangular filters, um, integrative filters. Well, some very clever programming and a very clever algorithm uh, based on boosting um, to do that. Uh, and so from then to now, there's a lot of progress. So that's 20 years. So I'm going to say there'll be unrecognizable progress within 20 years. Human-level AI progress? Um, capabilities, maybe some of them not as much as humans, maybe some of them more, as usual. Computers always always had better capabilities than people. Right. The, 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 so, so uh, but capable in many more applications than today's AI. Capable enough to um, write a scientific paper? Why not? <laughs> that's, that's probably one of the easier things. <laughs> well, the median paper, perhaps. <laughs> okay, and then once that happens, once we have a suite of human-level capabilities, what probability do you place on the outcome being net positive? Um... I think it's quite high that it's so on the basis that technology has been continuously good for us. Things have continuously got better. There are very few places in the past where you'd want to go. You certainly wouldn't want to go back in time and start life again as anyone except a very rich, very wealthy person in previous centuries. And even then, you'd greatly miss certain things. Uh, so I can say it's probably very positive. But. Despite these game theoretic, there are these game theoretic problems, yes, and many other problems. We, I, I Max Tegmark's argument question of what if people are outcompeted by AI? What is there for people to do? How do we value human achievement? It's a very good question. Okay, so we've got three minutes. Right. Can we do some like very rapid yes. questions? Yes. So, like, maybe one sentence, <laughs> if that's possible. Okay. I'll um, try. <laughs> Did you see deep Q learning coming? Uh, no. 
I obviously one tried to do it. Right. You tried yourself? Well, very badly. Right. I mean, not with, I I mean, in the last century. And of course, it's thoroughly unstable and it's very hard to get it to work. Mm. But um, uh, we had some problem in that EU project. I mean, work package one, people doing work package one kept on leaving to find companies and things. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So... A few years after you published the Q-Learning Algorithm, mm-hmm. you published a proof uh, that it converges to an optimal policy, mm-hmm. given enough training data. Mm-hmm. Why does deep Q-Learning work? Um, I, it, it works through, I think, tender loving care and very good choice of problems and good programming, and uh, through getting stability by essentially converting it into a series of problems of discrete improvements of the value function. But uh, I think it is partly, the point is it works on arcade games and arcade games are designed to be appealing to play. Right. So you've got a reward system. You don't put off your novice player by making it impossible for them. So this is a very friendly environment. Mm-hmm. And similarly, games like Chess and Go all these have been developed to be interesting and challenging for people to play. But we don't have the same theoretical understanding for why deep Q-learning works. I don't think so. Um, but I, um, I mean, there's a lot of theoretical work on Q-learning at the moment, uh, on, on, on reinforcement learning. Um, I don't think so. I mean, of course, frequently it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Do you miss the days when we could understand the algorithms we developed in such detail? I know, it's so exciting now. <laughs> Well, Professor Chris Watkins, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. You've been listening to Steering AI from the Department of Computer Science at UCL. Subscribe for future episodes, join the conversation on Twitter with the hashtag SteeringAI, and follow us on the account at UCLCS for announcements of future guests and your chance to suggest questions. Thank you for listening, and bye for now.